Welcome to the Uncommon Senses Podcast. In this special series, Sustainability, where we spill the tea on sustainability, we will discuss issues that centers around the environment and human development, specifically companies, technologies, policies, and individuals. In this series, we have a special co-host, Ms. Liana. She is currently pursuing a major in sociology and global sustainable development in the University of Warwick. Without further ado, let's get started. All right. So just now, I guess we looked at some, uh, we mostly focused on some non-renewable sources. And now I feel like we can dive into some details for the renewables. And I picked two. One is solar and another one is wind. And I picked solar and wind because personally, I'm very interested in them. And I think they're going to be like the future. Also kind of touch upon nuclear energy because it's very controversial. And I think we can talk a lot about, you know, the things revolving around nuclear energy is it renewable or is it you know an alternative energy resource but yeah first let's have a look at solar energy it's pretty cool honestly the invention of solar panels so essentially the sun provides us with a large amount of energy it provides us 1360 watt per meter squared of energy in a direct insulation so like at the equator that's the amount of energy you can get 1,360 watts per meter squared. And to compare this number, we can, let's use like LED light bulb. So a typical LED light bulb consumes 15 watts of power. So hypothetically, if we use the power of sun with 100% efficiency, uh, one square meter of sunlight could light up 90 LED light bulbs. However, this is at the equator. And for you know, a particular region, the insulation might be at a different angle, like for higher latitudes, like the UK, you know, and also like places with different seasons, the insulation from the sun will vary. And there's no way that the sun shines with like the same intensity throughout the entire day, because we have night times. And also, another thing is for a solar panel, we cannot harvest 100% of that energy. And there's no way a system can have 100% efficiency. And there are quite a few types of ways to harvest solar energy. And the first one is photovoltaic cells, which is basically your typical solar panels. Um, they use semiconductors, typically from silicon, which allows electrons to flow freely. And when electrons flow, that's how you generate electricity. And the second type is a solar energy power tower, where the heat of a solar energy is concentrated to a tower with thousands of movable mirrors. So there's a lot of mirrors in one plane, and then the sun shines on the mirrors. The mirrors reflected to basically a single point on a tower that contains a fluid. Um, such as oil, and it heats up that fluid to drive a steam turbine. Yeah, that's very different from the photovoltaic cells. That's kind of concentrating your solar energy, I guess. And another kind, so third kind, is solar water heaters, which heats up water in a tube, and the hot water in the tube is used to heat up the water for showering and stuff. So basically, there are so many different types of the ways which we can harvest solar energy and i think we can talk about you know solar panels because it is a very you know heated technology that's um been developing for quite a quite a few decades 
So previously I've mentioned about how the efficiency of solar panels are low. Um, there is actually two, two guys, Shockley and Quasier, in 1961, they proposed a theoretical limit for a standard single junction solar panel without concentrators. For this typical single junction solar panel, the efficiency limit is 31%, so it cannot exceed 31%. And yeah, basically, from my understanding, this junction thing refers to the PN junction, which basically describes the two different materials in a semiconductor. There are also so that so that's one the the single junction solar panels and then there's also um something called these thin film panels. So these thin film solar panels are very light and flexible, with layers three hundred times thinner, thinner than standard silicon, and they have an efficiency of around twenty percent. So these um thin film panels are your typical solar panels. I think pop kind of really popular solar panels out there. Um, but then there's also new technologies such as multi-junction solar panels, and they could potentially have a much higher efficiency. Triple junction, junction solar panels limit efficiency level is up to 50%. And there's also a lot more different kinds of solar panels. And the one that I find the coolest is transparent solar panels. So these transparent solar panels can potentially be attached on windows or even replacing windows. Um, and I think they're still in the development stage, but I hope they're going to become available because I think it's going to be super cool to harvest solar energy from your windows. And yeah, that's why I feel like I'm very interested in solar panels because it seems like the possibilities are are endless. But then there also exists a myth, which is also a question that I had in mind before um, that I was just thinking maybe the energy used to manufacture a solar panel can perhaps outweigh the energy produced by a solar panel in their lifetime. Because when you're producing a solar panel, you need a lot of energy. However, that is only a myth because there's a study by National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Um, they have demonstrated that for uh, the energy payback for a photovoltaic solar panel is generally less than four years. And typically a PV solar panel could last for 30 years. So this is just, you know, some, I guess, fun facts about solar panels. There's this question that I want to ask you guys, which I think is kind of fun. And Joshua mentioned a little bit about how solar panels can affect the climate. And the next question kind of related to that. So yeah, I think at some point we all have this moment where we're thinking like, wait, what if we cover the Sahara Desert with solar panels? Are we able to harvest a lot of energy? And yeah, actually, um, some people did calculate that if 1.2% of the desert, um, which is around uh, 110,000 square kilometers of, of the desert is covered with solar panels, like it actually would be enough to satisfy the entire world's energy needs. So just kind of a weird question to ask, but like, will you guys support this initiative? 1.2% is a lot low, like a lot less than I would expect. Yeah. I don't know. Because we talk about environmental sustainability. It's not just about global warming, climate change, mm. but there's also like biodiversity and land use change. So sure. I don't know. Like, I guess we have to consider the desert as a mm. biome, like how mm. that's going to affect the desert itself. Yeah. And also, there are people living in the desert. So, how's that going to mm. affect them? Yeah, definitely. And I, I guess another point to consider is that um, because 
as you mentioned, like solar panels are not exactly the you know the most efficient you know way of, mm. of which we harvest energy. And I think um, there's a video on YouTube you can look mm. at, uh, which explains how, um, as you've mentioned, how you know solar panel works is that you know uh, photons get um, you know comes mm. in contact with the panel and if they arrive at like a correct orientation or like a correct kind of like um momentum they're able to turn that you know proton into storable energy or like mm. you know but because of how you know a solar panel is positioned and also how like the sunlight works a lot of those rays and a lot of those photons actually get reflected back into the atmosphere mm. so you know and when they get reflected back they don't reflect back as like you know light energy but rather as heat mm. so um you know some people has argued that how a way of which um, solar panels can change the surrounding climate is that they can really heat up the Sahara Desert. And, mm. you know, some people will be like, you know, Sahara Desert is already very hot. You know, why does it matter if we increase the temperature by one or two percent? Yeah. And um, the same video kind of talks about how it could, uh, the increase of um, temperature can change the wind pattern of our, mm. you know, of our Earth. Because, um, as you know, um, our climate is a very complicated system and it requires, you know, different factors to work together. And apparently, um, due to the kind of um, increase of temperature and also the like, changing of the pressure system, um, a, an effect of that was uh, will be like there won't be any wind coming from the Sahara Desert to like the Amazon, which is like, you know, it, it, it kind of blows past the um, mm. ocean. And, you know, without sand getting blown to the um Amazon, it is predicted that um there won't be like fertile soil and you know nutrients to sustain our you know the Amazon forest, which as we know is the um lungs of the earth. So I guess um be it's not to say that this um idea is undoable, but I think that you know a lot of thought has to be put into it. There will be have to be consultation with like um um environmental scientists and working with like different um governments and different mm. people with different expertise. Because you know, as you mentioned, like this kind of um project is a huge undertaking and perhaps it will take like, you know, probably um decades or even centuries to achieve. So like mm. I think um, um yeah, although it seems like a really, a really nice idea and it's, uh, it seems really promising, I think um, we also have to approach these kinds of um, ideas with like caution and, you know, with reasonable skepticism. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think you have more points than, you know, what, what I prepared for. And yeah, it was, it, it's generally, there's so much more that can happen when you install these solar panels because the one that I found is about albedo. So I'll be geography, Liana, we know this. <laughs> it, yeah, it kind of describes, you know, how reflective the Earth's surface is. When you have like a more reflective surface, like a white surface, then that means it has a higher albedo. When it has a black surface, it absorbs light. That means you have a lower albedo. Yeah. So because these solar panels, you can tell that they, they are kind of like bluish, dark blue color. So... Their albedo is very low compared with the sand. So then you are kind of, you know, it's, it's less reflective. So you reflect less light back to the atmosphere and you're just kind of absorbing, absorbing the heat and trapping it in the Earth's atmosphere. And that itself can, you know, intensify global warming in a sense. So there, I guess, just with any kind of technology, there is so much things that we need to consider about. And also we need some actual 
data statistics to uh, simulations to support our argument. And yeah, I think that's that's basically my findings about you know solar panels. And another fun fact is that HKUST has the largest scale solar panel system in Hong Kong, which is pretty cool. We install them in like student halls, like on the roof of student halls. And yeah. thank you, UST. You guys are doing great. <laughs> yeah. And before it was like a net, it, before we didn't have a sustainability office, it was like a department. And then recent years, we are like an office now, which is really cool that we're focusing on that. <laughs> so next, I want to move on to wind energy. Location-wise, these wind energy are installed at high mountains without anything blocking it so you you don't install it at places where there are buildings or you can install them offshore so on in the sea in the sea there's also more wind like the winds are stronger as well and then i also found there are a lot of very creative ways to generate energy from wind such as a kite powered system so the kite power system um basically it happens where like there's a rotor connected to the kite and when the kite flies out through the air the rotor turns and generates electricity and okay a huge argument against wind energy is its disruption to our wildlife specifically birds and studies have found that in the u.s the average annual bird fatality caused by collision with a wind turbine is around 234,000 to 573,000 each year and like honestly the number seems like a lot like there's a lot of birds being killed by that however if you compare it with the numbers of birds that outdoor cats kill every year in the u.s which is 2.4 billion then then i just want to make this point like 234,000 versus 2.4 billion I don't, I don't, I don't see people coming out after cats and be like, you guys, what are you guys doing? Stop eating this bird. So, yeah, I feel like, yeah, what do you guys feel about that information? Have you guys thought about that? I mean, it's the same with planes, right? Like birds get killed by plane engines and things like that. And I mean, planes are generating carbon emissions. So, yeah, I guess it just depends on like where you're building it. Yeah, and I I guess it's just this sort of like narrative that has been commonly used by like I guess, um, political parties or even like you know people who opposes you know wind turbines near their house, it's just that they you know they find these sorts of reasoning to just oppose um I guess wind turbines in general because perhaps they don't want one built near their homes or like they have you know other um ulterior motive and. You know, it's these sort of myths are so successful in the sense that, you know, the first thing you think about, you know, be it um, wind energy, solar energy, or other types of, um, perhaps like other types of renewable energy, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, how bad they can be and how like it can sometimes be counterintuitively, mm-hmm. you know, bad for the environment. And yeah, I, I, I guess like, you know, the numbers doesn't lie. So like, um. <laughs> You know, when energy, uh, as you mentioned, like when energy doesn't really have like a big um, uh, impact on how, you know, birds uh, migrate, like contrary to popular belief, like 
you know, I, I even believed in this like myth, like before <laughs> you mentioned this. And yeah, and I also think that like, I don't think wind turbines have like a major effect on um on our like climate, at least like not that I know compared of like, with cats. how it can yeah, compared to cats are like <laughs> like how we can change like temperature and wind patterns i don't think they have that sort of mm. impact mm. so i think perhaps the main concern about wind turbines is just where we place them because like um as mm. you mentioned wind turbines can be placed in places of like near the sea and perhaps like near a mountaintop so perhaps it can destroy like the scenery people think it looks ugly or like mm. um these ports and these places could be used as you know other things you know other yeah. than winter uh, places where you place wind turbines so perhaps um you know in terms of opportunity cost it can really um uh has some economic impacts and so on but you know i think in general compared to other sources of renewable energy like i don't think the um wind turbines really affect the like um like adversely affect the environment that much i think more mm -hmm. of the argument is to make in terms of um you know its efficiency uh how economic it is and also like um how reliable it is mm -hmm. because you know i i guess as of right now it's hard to find a source of energy a sort of renewable energy that is both like you know environmentally um safe uh, it's safe environmentally friendly and also like reliable i think mm -hmm. it's very hard to find that sweet spot in between yeah i i mean that's absolutely true and also i guess also how much the efficiency of these renewable resources is also a, a question to ask. Yeah, I guess the cat analogy just tells us to just keep your cats indoors. Don't let them lose. And um, yeah, I guess just another point on one last point on uh, wind energy or any kind of, you know, renewable energy is that if you look at, you know, how uh, the supply demand of renewable energy are, um, in in the current situation, uh, China has been leading the world in terms of renewable energy production. So, like, I do have a question. Like, as a large part of uh, China's GDP comes from the secondary sector, like, it's around forty point five percent from secondary industry in two thousand and seventeen, which that basically means it will ultimately create a large amount of pollution as well as greenhouse gases. So what are your point of views towards like perhaps some countries' stance that, you know, industrialized countries should be more responsible for the pollution that they are causing? I guess the some country stance, I refer to some developed country stance, you know, saying that, you know, industrialized industrializing countries, you guys should take a more responsibility and control that carbon emission. So What's your views on that? Wait, they're saying that, you know, countries that are you know, industrializing, like, you know, as in countries that are transitioning from LEDCs to MEDCs, like they yeah. should be more responsible for the pollution they produce. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting standpoint because like quite often I hear the argument saying that MEDCs should be like, um, you know, given the greater responsibility because industrializing oh. economies are, um, you know, they're still developing. They should be, you know, given the opportunity to kind of pollute for a little, so to speak, <laughs> to like catch up. Like, yeah. And yeah, I, I guess it just reminds me of this saying that, you know, my pro pro professor said in class, which I find really like interesting. He says, 
he said that you know people often say oh how you know um how china is like polluting and how mm. like you know it's doing you know this and that but uh, uh we have to keep in mind that you know for hundreds of years western nations are able to, to like freely pollute freely industrialize like during the industrial revolution and so like can't we just you know give the same time for like these industrializing nations to kind of do the same like why should you have the moral high ground and to mm. condemn it under other countries mm. when you yourself were the first to like pollute and to like create this problem in the first place so yeah i just think it's a very interesting argument yeah. about like um, um you know who's responsible but personally speaking mm. i don't think we should be like finger pointing at this point so i think we should just all work together to um mm. to achieve like um you know uh a perhaps like a non-polluting way to like develop our economies but yeah i guess that's kind of idealistic and um yeah i'm not sure if can it can be achieved in real life you know seeing that there are so many like geopolitical tensions and you know people caring about their self-interest it's really hard to do that i guess in real life mm. And it's also about like the whole supply chain, right? Like manufacturing mm. and factories are just a part of that. So things are produced, like things that are produced are demanded and imported by so-called mm. developed countries. Yeah. So you can't just like point the finger at them. Yeah, I agree. Also with climate change, uh, the, the countries that are vulnerable are those who are like less developed and they don't have the methods to... Um, you know, cope with any climate disasters. Also, this whole idea of, you know, environmental protection slash sustainability, I, I do think that to some extent is a very, it's a very MEDC problem, not going to lie, because if you're on LEDC, I guess you have more, it more issues that involve like the well-being of humans to really take care of than the environment, I guess. So, yeah. yeah that's a very interesting point, which like leads me to a kind of scenario. I kind of want to ask you guys because I'm very interested to see what you guys think. So, mm -hmm. like in the Matrix, they actually like found a way for like they 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 have this scenario where they extract you know energy from human bodies. Do you think mm -hmm. you know if this technology is available? Do you think? society should use it if it's able to save our environment i mean some people could argue that you know even though it seems really unethical some people could argue that you know oh we're just you know it's just humans serving humans you know so we're able to contain the problem within our own species instead of like you know exploiting other species for you know, our own economic gain so what do you guys th think you know, should we use this kind of technology if it's available how exactly does it work though? Like extracting energy from <laughs> So like uh I'm not sure I don't think the um I I forgot what the matrix said, but like I remember like our old English teacher, Mr. Said, he thought of a scenario yeah. where like you know how humans are powered by like mitochondria, <laughs> right? So like an idea would be like to have these microchips and like kind of placed within our micro mitochondria. So on a cellular level, they kind of like extract our energy. And like, you know, it makes people really tired. It makes people like fatigue and you have all sorts of problems, but, you know, they're able to produce these, you know, huge um, facet of energy that, you know, could otherwise, you know, uh, be saving our, um, our environmental problems that comes from energy generation. Mm. Wait, but if it makes it makes us tired and you get all this energy, then who's going to use that energy? 
Like we're not gonna like we're not gonna do anything that needs the energy, right? Like if we're so tired. I guess the <laughs> ones the ones are reaching out. <laughs> I, I guess it's a, a um, win-win situation, right? It, you know, it reduces our energy usage and also generates energy. So <laughs> it's a good proposal. It's like <laughs> I guess like oh. in a kind of crazy sense, it's a workable oh. proposal. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was I'm very skeptical of this, so it's really hard to imagine. Yeah, like mm-hmm. what I'll actually think about it if it's an actual technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I, that's very true. And you know, the, the the entire like point why I want to bring up this scenario is that I just want mm-hmm. to kind of touch upon the you know conflict between you know humans like human rights and human comfort and also like saving mm-hmm. the environment you know should we go for a more anthropocentric approach where we put ourselves first or should we go on like a more ecocentric approach where we put you know our earth and nature first so i guess there's con- there's always this kind of struggle and which makes you know uh the subject you're pursuing like um yeah, yeah. sustainable development and you know um all the kind of discussions about climate so important and so like a fascinating, su- such a fascinating subject to kind of like uh, discuss and to research upon. I think that wouldn't like that's a very extreme example. Like yeah, <laughs> sacrificing our energy, but then <laughs> it's still relevant. Like it exists, right? Like even with just moving away from fossil fuels, like this is mm. a debate that happens all the time. Like how much should I change my habits? Yeah. 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 Remember, like, there's this essay where it's called, like, I forgot, it's like the, uh, the a modest proposal. I, I don't know if you guys remember where it's like mm-hmm. I'm eating people's babies. And I don't know, maybe you can write in. <laughs> like, it's a satir- satirical essay about how, you know, we could solve society's problem by. Um, I guess killing the babies of those who are poor. <laughs> oh. I guess in the future, write like a similar essay talking about how the dystopian we solve, story. Yeah, we we solve energy usage by just powering it off of humans. Thanks for introducing that idea, Joshua. Let's yes. move on. <laughs> wait, wait, actually, like about the renewal. Wait, what was it? Like the oh, the blaming blaming developing countries, but. Yeah, like yeah. China specifically, like just look mm. up claims that Trump says, like Trump has said oh, about yeah. China. And the thing is, like we can laugh about it and say how illogical it is, mm. but we also have to admit that he does have quite a high level of influence within the U.S., but also globally, and also mm. in terms of how climate change is dealt with internationally. Like he pulled out of the Paris Agreement because it's mm. taking away American jobs. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's such a good point. These public figures, you know, how, and also just now we talked about plastic recycling, you know, all of these advocacies done by, you know, people that have, or organizations, institutions that have a high influence over people. Like, how, how should we deal with this? Like, okay, Trump, like, I guess you're free to say whatever you want, but then, um should you also be held accountable for everything that you've said and everything you've commented so yeah that's very interesting and honestly i want to talk about this more in this next segment which i want to discuss which is nuclear energy um because there is also very quite an influential person that talked about you know their views towards um, nuclear energy in the uk so yeah nuclear energy i guess we're no strangers to 
to this type of energy. It's caused by nuclear fission of uranium or plutonium isotopes, which will trigger off a chain reaction, and the nuclear power plant could generate a large amount of energy. And also with this kind of energy, no direct CO2 emissions is generated. And despite the money it takes to build a nuclear power plant, as well as decommissioning a power plant that has been used for so long, um, safety is also a concern in this type of alternative energy. And as of right now, there isn't a best solution for disposing the spent fuels of radioactive waste. And there has been multiple core melt accidents like Chernobyl, Fukushima, etc. There has been quite a number of them in the past history. And a research by Professor Thomas Rose and Trevor Sweeting suggested that within the next 10 years, the probability of a core melt accident in a world with 443 reactors is 69.8%. So that... that it sounds like there's a high probability that there might be a core melt accident of nuclear power plants. And I will link their paper in the description. And then, yeah, for as of right now in the world currently, we have 437 operable power plants um, yeah, in the world. And a breakdown of nuclear power plants could cause serious long-term health problems in living organisms. However... Another, a, a Professor David McKay, the author of the book Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, and not going to lie, this book and this particular professor inspired me a lot in, in this sustainability series and also my interest in sustainability. And yeah, Professor David McKay has said that, uh, please don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be pro-nuclear or anti-wind, I'm just pro-arithmetic. So yeah, he is saying that people, you know, he basically argued how unrealistic it is that in the UK um, to have zero carbon solutions that solely rely on solar, wind, and biomass energy. As he argued that these, if we all, if UK only rely on these, will cost too much money and land. And nuclear, with promising energy efficiency, is a more feasible solution for the UK. And however, David McKay did mention that solar energy is great for sunny and hot nations. And he also feel like electric cars are also a great new technology for the future. And I will also attach this article in, in the description below. But I just honestly want to ask you guys about your views on nuclear energy. You know, are, are, are you guys willing to kind of risk your, your health and safety for you know a very promising and highly efficient power source what do you guys think i think there's a very like it's not just about the actual risk of a meltdown but it's also mm. like perceived risk and i know there's like generally speaking i think not a lot of people are that comfortable with having nuclear energy so i don't know maybe it's not up to me <laughs> yeah i think it's um, statistically speaking, more people die every year in a coal mine, like, you know, from, you know, oh. getting coal than like dying from a nuclear meltdown because nuclear meltdowns are extremely rare in like probability. Mm. 
but you know another argument is that you know when it's kind of like a plane crash right when they do like happen it affects like an mm. area permanently you can't return to the area and you know affects like the entire like global food supply or like our global climate so mm. um yeah it's definitely a very you know controversial topic and i guess there's also the other arguments you know in terms of nimby so like not in my backyard kind of point of view where people are like oh um mm, you know we want yeah. to have nuclear energy because it's reliable it's more um you know um it's perceived to be more environmentally friendly which you know um it's another sort of argument because with like um you know uh nuclear waste and all that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. like um but then people are like oh i want to have its benefits or like but then I don't want it to be near my home because, mm. you know, in case anything happens, I don't want that to affect my friends, my families, and you know, my homeland. So, yeah, um, um I don't know. <laughs> it's a very complicated topic, and I guess, like the answer, I don't think it's really up to me to like make these decision because I think it's a very like um. um it's a public safety kind of like mm. decision. It's also it's also a very like economic decision. It's a environmental decision. So like I think these are definitely like really big uh topics that you know require I guess uh leadership from more yeah. like influential people or like people who are more um educated in these fields than us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I absolutely agree. I just feel like, yeah, it's not up to me. It's up to the policymakers. And if to build it, you know, I, I, I can see the pros and cons for doing that. And I, I do feel like, yeah, Professor David McKay and also um, Professor Thomas Rose and Trevor Sweet- Sweeting, they all made really good points about why we should or should not have nuclear energy. And that's all I that's all I know. Like there's nothing much I can do. So yeah, I think it's great for us to spend this time and discuss about the latest technology and sustainable energy, renewable energy, as well as, you know, non-renewable energy and how they, you know, intersect with our individual behavior, how it intersects with, you know, companies and, you know, policies. So yeah. Lastly, I guess I would just like to say we did a lot of research for this series and a lot of these information are inspired um, in this episode is inspired by the two courses I took uh, about sustainability and university, energy systems in a sustainable world, um, and also the book without sustainable, sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, as well as Environmental Science course. And with all of the um, research information that I found, I would just attach all of those links in the description. So if you're interested, feel free to check it out. And yeah, I guess that's it for this episode of the special series, Sustainability. We hope you guys enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time on The Uncommon Senses.